Hello, hello, and welcome to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I answer your questions about how to find sexually and emotionally compatible partners, and really, how advisable it is to get in touch with your ex, especially during cuffing season. I also share my interview with the brilliant Dr. Paige Fisher, aka my mom. We talk about her journey on becoming Dr. Fisher instead of Dr. Tidy, when I told her about the first time that I kissed a girl, and basically how I have been a huge sex nerd ever since I was three. To me, it really does feel like the perfect way to end season one with a woman who has taught me so much about how to hold my head high and to share my voice with the world. But first, today in sex. Last week, I posted on Instagram about not taking my husband's last name when we got married. And wowza, team, there were so many comments and name stories that came flooding into my inbox. I know there are also a lot of folks out there who are like, wait, why are we still talking about names? But clearly, it struck a chord. I was pretty amazed at the response that this post got and the range of stories from all around the world. My mom and I get into some of your comments and her own name story in my interview with her later in the episode, but in particular, there was one question that that really stood out for me. Why didn't you and Levi take your loved one's names, like Leah Hildebrand Tidy and Levi Tidy Hildebrand? Well, that's a valid question, and in many ways, I recognize that desire to demonstrate our love and our commitment by taking each other's name. But there was something that Levi and I did that meant a lot more to both of us than changing our names. And even better than me telling you that story, Levi and I actually have an entire video about it, and I'm going to play a clip for you now. As I explained um, before this, Leah and I are going to basically talk about how we got the idea for our rings um, and, and how they sort of came to be. At some point in our relationship, my mom said to me, Levi, I would like you to have your great-grandmother Harris's rings. And I thought that that was really nice. I didn't think about it very much. So, the beginning of this summer, we're hanging out with my parents and I say, hey mom, um, yeah, so uh, if you have those rings, uh, I think we'd like to use them. My mom proceeds to get very emotional and uh, basically ends up asking Leah to marry me for me. (laughs) (laughs) She was crying and I was crying and was basically like, you use these rings to marry that nice woman over there. Once I had heard that Levi had these rings, I was out for lunch, yeah, with my dad and my grandpa, and um, I kind of said to them, like, do we have any family rings that are just, you know, sitting in a jewelry box somewhere and not being used? And and they thought about it and they couldn't really think of of anything. I said that was fine. Um, And so fast forward like months later, like three or four months later, um, it was Easter time and my grandpa, who's 91, and him and I have done a lot of traveling together and he's a very special person to me. He pulled me aside and said that he's fiddling with his ring, his wedding ring. Him and my grandmother were married for 57 years um, and their marriage only ended when my grandmother passed away. He's worn it for another nine years after that. Um, he said, you know, I, if you want to marry Levi, I, I really want you to use this ring. And he was like, you know, 
I don't need it because none of the old biddies, they, they don't need a ring to like deter them from being into me. <laughs> He's a very cute man though. I don't know why he said that. I think these rings are gonna mean a lot because they, they have so much in them. There's, there's so many other people in them with us. There's, there's so many stories already that have been carried through these rings and now, now they're ours. And they quite literally in them have the initials of the people who came before us and, and wore them. Oh my God, are you serious? Oh my God. You already Yeah, do you want to get engaged? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> oh Yeah, I definitely cry every time I rewatch this video. So if you want to see the full story behind our wedding rings and our eco-friendly wedding, then they are linked in the episode description. Basically, whether you decide to change your name or not when you tie the knot, it really should be your choice. I think we forget that and we can judge each other about making decisions that we wouldn't make for ourselves. As with sex and relationships of all different varieties, making the choices that work best for us and bring us the most pleasure, that's what it's all about. So with this in mind, let's get to your calls. Today I'm answering a series of Instagram questions that folks have sent in. And thank you so much for your wonderful questions. And this is just a reminder that the best way to have your question answered on the show is to send a voice message either through Instagram or to the Love Doctor podcast at gmail.com. But here's the first question. I'd love to hear a talk about the struggle to find a partner sexually and emotionally compatible. You know, it can be such a struggle to find partners who are compatible with us on all levels. And the reality is, there isn't anyone who is actually a perfect fit. We know that Disney movie romances, they aren't real. But that idea that there is only one perfect person out there for each of us, that still seems to be something that we, that we cling on to. First, relationships are something that we need to build with ourselves before we can be good partners to other people. If we have a good understanding of who we are in the world and what we value and what brings us pleasure, then we can more clearly communicate that with potential partners. Of course, you know, these things, they can change over time, but checking in with ourselves to see what kind of partner we are, it gives us better insight into the kind of partners we might want. So what do you enjoy sexually? How do you even define sex? How often would you like to have sex? And what kind of relationship are you looking for? Is it casual sex, a monogamous relationship, or is it a polyamorous or an open relationship? And you also have to ask yourself these same questions about your emotions. You know, what kind of capacity do you have in your life to dedicate to a relationship? Maybe a casual relationship is what you're after, or maybe a more long-term commitment. How are you at handling your own stress, which for a lot of us is pretty intense right now with the state of the world? And also, how compassionate and empathetic are you in acknowledging other people's emotions? While we love to make that jump straight into finding partners that are right for us and scrutinizing everything about them, we have to start with our own understanding of self. Once we have a good understanding of who we are, then we can start looking for partners that are compatible. 
Now, this is something that Jasmine and I talked about, where you don't need to match each other perfectly, but you need to have enough shared desires and values to make it work. I also want to say that no one is going to meet all of your criteria, and we need to be aware that romantic or sexual relationships, they aren't the only relationships in our lives. I like to say that I have multiple life partners because these relationships, well, they bring something to my life that no other relationship can. Yes, Levi is my husband and my life partner, but him and I don't have the same relationship and emotional intimacy as I do with with my parents or my siblings or really close friends. And it is this network of relationships that sustain me in being the best partner that I can be in all of those different realms. Now, Dan Savage, who I absolutely love, and I mentioned him before, he has a great term that he uses in the Savage Lovecast about rounding up to 10. Now, if a partner meets most of your emotional and sexual needs, let's say that they're a 7 or an 8 out of 10, then you round them up to that 10 because no one, I repeat, no one is going to be a perfect 10 out of 10. And neither are you. And I find this really comforting because if we all recognize that we're humans with our flaws and our quirks, then maybe we'll be kinder to each other and actually enjoy having sex with ourselves and each other more if we let go of that fairy tale ideal. This is a topic that I want to dive into deeper, but don't worry, I have some amazing people lined up for season two that I know will help all of us dig into what do we mean by sexual and emotional compatibility. So look out for that coming out in the new year. Also, the article, 20 Things to Know About Sexual Compatibility, it's an awesome resource to start having these conversations with ourselves and potential or current partners. Of course, it's linked in the episode description. Let's take another question. If you get back in touch with your ex, how do you navigate a healthy friendship or relationship? Oh, I wish we were all in a room right now because I would ask everyone listening to raise their hands if they had ever been tempted to or did get back in touch with an ex. I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of hands would go up, including my own. So, Why don't we start with my own personal experience? I was in a long-term relationship before I met Levi, and my partner before, he was really wonderful. We started dating when we were pretty young, but we were together for four years, and we even traveled through Australia and New Zealand together. And things ended well between us, but we had grown into completely different people, and we just weren't really working anymore. But it was really tough after we broke up because I still cared for him really deeply, even though I knew we shouldn't be together anymore. And we did see each other a few times after we broke up with mixed results. It is insanely hard to set those boundaries with someone we used to be in a relationship with. And it sounds silly, but it's especially hard at this time of year when the weather is colder. Okay, well, I live in Canada, as you know, but it's definitely getting colder here, and we are getting closer and closer to the holiday season. Now, this is actually called cuffing season, where we seek out partners in the fall in preparation for winter and wanting someone to be with. And it's exasperated by COVID-19, where our options on who we can be close with, that's pretty limited. So calling out to our exes as we prepare for a pretty uncertain December and 2021 can seem like a great idea. So how do you make sure you're building a healthy friendship or relationship with an ex? First off, be clear on what you want. Is it a friendship you're looking for? Or is it sex buddies or casual sex? Or are you looking to get into a committed relationship? What is it? 
try to separate this answer from your ex themselves, but rather what you want in terms of friendships and relationships. If you already have really great friends who love and support you, then are you really looking for another friendship? For me, I had a really great friendship with my ex, which was the foundation of our relationship even before we started dating. The sad reality is that even though we broke up over seven years ago, we haven't been able to really be friends again. But there are definitely exes out there who do become friends after a breakup. So first, you got to figure out whether you're actually looking for more friends in your life. Now you can start to add in the equation of your ex and whether you want them as a person in your life. How did the relationship end? Was it messy? Was it painful? And are you willing to repeat that if you end up getting back in a relationship? It's not necessarily going to repeat those same patterns that you had in the relationship before, but unless someone has fundamentally changed or our circumstances have fundamentally changed, then those issues that were present before, they're probably going to be present now. Now, there are also many reasons that relationships don't work out. So investigate whether it was a foundational issue, such as your values didn't match up or there wasn't mutual respect in the relationship, or if it was something more circumstantial, such as, you know, a timing issue. If we're being honest, there was a time that I thought my ex and I were going to get married and that we were going to be together long term, but our life timing, it was totally off from each other. There were other reasons that our relationship ended, but fundamentally, we were at different stages in our lives and we wanted different things. And if that's the case with you and your ex and those circumstances have changed, then maybe you can build a healthy relationship with each other. The main thing is to consider your expectations about this relationship. If you think somehow the issues that you had in your relationship are now fixed or that you can happily be your ex's friend, even if you're still in love with them, then yeah, that's not a healthy place to start. Once you've done the personal work to figure out why you're reaching out to an ex and what your expectations are, then you need to communicate that with them. I'm so glad you're talking to me, but the only person who's really going to know if that relationship is going to be healthy or not is you and that ex. So you need to be really clear about what it is you're looking for. And if you're open to rekindling the relationship, you got to be honest about it instead of pining for them in hopes that maybe one day they'll feel the same way again. And because I love giving you resources so you can learn more and figure out what is going to work for you, I've linked the Talkspace article, What Does a Healthy Relationship with Your Ex Look Like? It has an awesome breakdown on healthy relationships and really what to think about before you pick up that phone. Also, there is a great article about cuffing season and how it can be really easy to settle for a relationship that isn't actually healthy because you don't want to be alone in these very uncertain times. I get it. I'm speaking from a total place of privilege because I live with my partner. I live with my parents. So I have people that I can be close with like physically and emotionally during these strange times. But that is not the reality for a lot of other folks. I would highly recommend giving this article a read. It's called Why Cuffing Season is Reckless and Damaging. And the best part of this article is the advice about being kind to yourself first and foremost. Of course, both articles are linked in the episode description. Let's share some quick feedback and then we'll get into my interview with my mom. I received some really lovely feedback about my interview with Steph and Caitlin from Let's See the World on episode 12 of the podcast. So this person wrote to me to say, I am just now getting to listen to an episode of your podcast. I chose the lesbian sex episode for a few reasons. 
I am a cisgender, straight female, and a nurse practitioner student who is in a women's health clinical rotation. My best childhood friend is a lesbian, and I am writing to tell you how very helpful this episode has been. As I identify as a social norm, there are so many things that are foreign to me. And much like race, this can be a really difficult conversation to have without coming across as judgmental or disrespectful. I'm super excited to listen to more of your episodes. The fact that you focus on communication is just spectacular, and I feel like this has fallen by the wayside in so many ways. Looking forward to learning more, and thanks so much for your hard work. Thank you so much. And to everyone who's listening, if you have comments, if you have reviews, or if you have suggestions for the new season, please do not hesitate to get in touch. You can check me out on Instagram or Twitter, or leave me an email or a voice message to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. And now, my interview with Dr. Paige Fisher. First, I'm going to open this bottle of wine. That's important. That's my prerequisite. Wine. Wine. Now, I don't normally offer wine to my interview guests. To be fair, most of them don't live in the same house with me. Oh, uh, Levi. Levi didn't even get wine. I think I gave him tea. He might not have demanded it as a prerequisite. That's true. Most That's of the interviews are on Zoom. That is true. The rest of them are on Zoom. I would have loved to have drank wine with a lot of them. Okay. Hi, Mama. Hi. <laughs> Here, we can drink, we can drink wine first. Cheers. I say older women need wine to fuel conversations about... Oh, no, what is it that you say? Older women need wine to lubricate conversations about to sex. To lubricate conversations. It's probably a lot more wine than this. <laughs> well, yeah, this is only our first glass, and it's like 7.30 at night. I mean, that's... Uh, we're very well behaved. It is a Tuesday. Depends though. on how long this interview goes. <laughs> Well, I find it interesting how that's, as you said, you're like older women, they need wine to be able to have that conversation because it's awkward to have that conversation. You don't have the language or the space to do it. Like, I don't even feel like I'm capable of talking about sexual health now. Like maybe in the last three or four years, do I feel confident in doing that? But that's taken a lot of effort and work to do that. And those same resources were not there when you were my age. No, we definitely didn't have those conversations. And I've been thinking that a lot. And every time I listen to your podcast, it's like, okay, that's some of the language I can use to talk about that and think about that. So yes, the wine is connected to feelings of anxiety and shame and all the other ways that we grew up with thinking about sex. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we don't have the language or the practice. And so that's one of the things I've been appreciating about listening to your podcast and think, okay, there's a different way to think about that. There's a different way to talk about that. Oh, thanks. Well, let's start with, we can get into the sex stuff later. Let's start whoosh, at the very beginning. Dr. Fisher, would you like to introduce yourself as my mother, but also like, what, what do you do? Lots of people have asked me this. I work in teacher education at Vancouver Island University, which means I spend half of my time working with undergraduate students who are working towards becoming teachers and the other half of my time working in our master's program with practicing teachers who are seeking to upgrade their skills or re-inspire their practice. Mm -hmm. And I get involved in research projects and community work as part of my role. Just one of your many, many things of having lived here for the last you know, four months, it's incredible the amount of things that you're involved in, like that community engagement beyond just being at the university and working with people there. And your students are 
all over the province. So when you got your PhD, though, because I think this is a really important thing to mention is, A, my mom's a badass and has a PhD. She also finished her PhD the same year that I graduated high school. So when did you decide to go back to school to do your master's? I think I was, let's see, I was in seven. I was seven years old. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you were nine when I started my doctorate. I remember thinking to myself, well, she's nine. She'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I was abandoning you. I think, would that make sense? Is that about right? If you were nine, maybe you were nine when I started my master's. Because if you were finishing high school and it was seven years. Nine when you went back for your master's. Yeah, because I was Oh, that would make sense. Yeah, I was 18 when you finished your PhD. Okay, there you go. For some reason, nine is in my head. I, I, I'm okay, I think. I think I turned out all right. You were all re- always a very self-sufficient child. Oh, thank you. And I also, um, just so folks know, I'm also not an only child. I'm the youngest of three children. So it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going back to school. It's like, I'm going back to school. You were already working full time as a teacher and you had three kids and you had like dad, obviously too, but that's a lot to, to take on. Yeah, I was busy. and it wasn't in the same city you also had to drive to victoria to go to class to do your master's to do your phd and then come back to nanaimo that's true that's absolutely not something you can do if you don't have a supportive family yeah that's true i think in a lot of ways for me that was a big part of not only the fact of you going to get your phd but the fact that you actually lived that that ideal that I think a lot of women feel that pressure to uphold it. Like, hey, I need to have a family life, but I also need to have a career. But you did it in such a way that, and I've said this to you before, like as a kid, like I never felt neglected. I never felt like I couldn't spend time with you or do all those things together, but was also very inspired that you were doing that work. And is a huge part of why I wanted to carry on and go to grad school and eventually why I got my PhD. That's it. So then all that complaining you do now about having to make your own lunches. That's true. We did have to make our own lunches starting from the age of like five or six. It had nothing to do with going to schools because I hate making lunches. (laughs) Well, you've created three very self-sufficient children. So that is excellent. I think you were born self-sufficient. Do you think I was also born a sex nerd? Oh, well, that emerged pretty early on for sure. How so? (laughs) It's really interesting. As a toddler, you were a very passionate child. So, you know, (laughs) you'll know this when you experience parenthood, but it's almost like a child sort of takes over your body. Like they Mm -hmm. just own you with, they own you body and soul. And you were that kind of baby toddler child who just, owned me completely like you would grab my face and just like oh mommy i'm not saying that's sexual but you're just a very passionate loving person which carries over into all kinds of your relationships i'm assuming yeah, I, I would think so. I just, that image that you paint of me, you can't see this, but my mom literally held either side of her face and was like, oh, mommy, I love you so much. I'm like, oh, I could, I actually kind of, I feel like I have memories of seeing your face like that, but I didn't realize it was my hands making it look like that. Ah, that's so interesting. And when you said too, is that a lot of time I was very 
affectionate with people. It didn't take me long to just instantly be like affectionate with a lot of people and be like sitting on someone's lap and getting to know them. And again, not in like in a sexual way, but just I'm very interested in other people. And I'm, I'm very earnest, which is something that I think is good, but I, I struggle with my earnestness. But also very empathetic. No, you're earnest in your empathy or in mm. your genuine desire to connect with people. So it's not, you know, sometimes we think of earnest as sort of, I don't know, maybe not authentic, but it was just you, you know, it's sort of an old phrase that people say, oh, so-and-so was an old soul, but you really came across that way as a child with a depth beyond your years who just was really interested in deeply connecting with people, noticing what people do for you and like <laughs> crazy stuff. Like I remember you being sick one night and you're just like, you know how little kids are doing you're like barf all night. It's a terrible night and we're changing sheets and we're up and we're down and none of us get very much sleep. And the first thing you said in the morning was like, mommy, thank you for looking after me. And you're thinking, <laughs> of course I looked after you. <laughs> But you actually took the time to notice what other people were doing for you, which was very endearing. Oh, God, we've only had half a glass of wine. If we drank more wine, there would be far too many tears. Way too many tears. That's why we started the interview when I cracked the bottle. Oh, my gosh. I also wanted to ask you, so I made that post I'm showing you on my Instagram a little while ago about not changing my last name when Levi and I got married. And I was kind of gobsmacked by the amount of uh, stories that that elicited. Like that's that post has received like the most engagement I've ever gotten on a post. Oh my gosh, you're so sweet. You're just wiping your tears. It's so sweet. Oh my gosh. That's what's to notice. But yeah, like this, this post has got, you know, something like over 130 comments of people just wanting to share their name stories. And, and, you know, I don't know in terms of all these people, but a a lot of it from what I assume is from cisgender women who marry men and just that assumption that you change your name. And that assumption is still alive and well now in 2020. And obviously, there's a cultural context around it. So it's not necessarily true in all different countries in the world. But what was that like for you? Because when you and dad got married, that was in 85? Yes. What was the expectation around it then? And I wonder if you can kind of take me through that, that your own name journey. Oh, well, it's weird. Because I wasn't actually brave enough, I don't think, or, or aware enough of the possibility of resisting that trend. I didn't even think of it when we mm. first got married. I did, I did change my name when we got married. Mm. And then... It was sort of strange because as soon as that happened and I started being called Mrs. Tidy, I thought, that's not me. That's my mother-in-law. Like, it just Mm -hmm. felt very strange. I sort of thought, okay, well, it's sort of the strangeness of being newly married. But then when I went back to university and got closer to finishing my degree, I was doing my teaching practicums. So we'd been married by about five years by then. I guess five years. And being in classrooms and not being called by the name I was born with, it just started to bug me to the extent that I didn't want to do that anymore. And I actually did some research and found out that legally in Canada, you can just use either name interchangeably and you don't have to legally change your name back. So actually, ever since then, I've always just not really done anything about it, but I used Heidi for some things and I used Fisher for other things. All of my professional qualifications are under Fisher. My paycheck comes under Fisher. My B 
BC care card is under tidy though. And I think my income tax return comes in under tidy, even though all my paychecks are under Fisher. Now, I don't know if that's something that I'm going to have to deal with at some point, but it was just sort of easier. <laughs> I got some legal advice at some point that, that we were just allowed to do that. And I always really just felt more comfortable. It just never fit me to have someone else's name. Your your post was interesting too, though, because you think, okay, well, it still is some other man's name. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the solution to that is. Like, do we come to a place where we create our own name? But there is some... What do we lose when we begin to buck those trends too, I suppose? Like mm -hmm. the the sense of lineage and where your family connections are. I don't really know yeah. what I think about that. All I really knew, know is that personally, the sticking point for me was wanting to have my name that I was born with on my degree when I got my degree. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've heard that from actually a lot of people as well on a similar vein of their, you know, their finishing undergraduate and not saying that it's only when you are going to university that you can... To, to want to keep that last name but from a lot of folks like getting like masters or phds or whatever it is they're like it really became a moment of when you decide because you go online and say what name do you want on your degree and i can't imagine that idea of trying to figure out if i'm gonna write leah hildebrand or leah tidy just because i don't know who leah hildebrand is like she's like she sounds nice, but like I just is not who like I am as a person as well. And for some reason too, like this having worked that hard to get that doctor in front of your name. And obviously that's not the reason why you do it. It does because it opens up all of these other doors for you in terms of your career and things that you want to do. But having doctor attached to Hildebrand just felt like an erasure of the family and like the lived experience that I had that got me to that point. Well, then it becomes a whole thing about your children. Oh, absolutely. And I didn't buck that. I didn't fight that at all. But sometimes it, I have to admit that it kind of bugs me that my kids don't have Fisher. But then how far do you go and how complicated does it get? And if you have two names, then do your grandchildren have four names? I don't know the answer to any of that. Yeah. Well, and so much what was interesting was hearing from all of these different cultural perspectives and from a lot of folks saying in Latin America that you do, you have both of your parents' names and that is absolutely the norm. But then also accepting, okay, I'm just going to have a longer name. A lot of the time, unless you're filling out forms, that's not really that big of a deal. I, but I say this as someone who has a relatively short name though. So I, I don't know the struggle. But yeah, I, I do wonder that too. It's something that I've thought about I want to have that connection to both of my parents and knowing that even though tidy has always felt very who I am because again I grew up with that name and I think it's a cool last name too which is probably a, a big part of I've heard from some people they're like oh my last name was Smith so I got rid of it because you know everyone and their dog is named Smith and I wonder too about Fisher and how I would want that to become more of my identity but not really knowing what to do about it now? Do I legally add it into my name? Do I make sure that that's something I pass on to my own children? Are they going to be, you know, Fisher, Swan, Tidy, Hildebrands? Because <laughs> Levi's mom also goes by her last name, which is Swan, which is a beautiful last name. Like Fisher and Swan. It's hilarious that they're Fisher and Swan. <laughs> but I think in retrospect, I would like to have put Fisher in as one of your middle names for each of you kids. Mm -hmm. And again, it was sort of not the done thing. And dad's family is pretty traditional. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have the confidence to buck that trend at the time. So, but interestingly, when you think about it, one of your middle names I gave to you because it was my mom's last name. 
Really? Jess? No, not Why you. Not no, me? that's Jill. <laughs> Always get your kids mixed up. That was from my mom's side of the family, though. Yes, that's true. Whoops, I, I had that moment. That name. You're like, oh, yeah, Vale. And I was like, what? I mean, that's a great name, but that's not my name. It's a that's great name. If I thought of it earlier, I could have given it to you as a first name. Vale. It is a good name. <sighs> I know. But you know what? Here's another interesting thing about this, because mm. I don't want to come across like criticizing people who do decide to change mm-hmm. their names. Because I always find it intriguing and kind of neat the way some of my adult women friends really possess their partner's names. Like mm. they're very much, as a unit, those two names. It just is so much who they are and they both really identify with who they are with that mm-hmm. name. I'm curious about it. It's not the, it's not my experience and it's not the way I feel about it. But mm-hmm. I also don't um, want to minimize that commitment that they feel to having, having made the change. Or mm-hmm. even young women, I'm surprised and don't completely understand the number of young women nowadays who are changing their names. And I'm curious about what that... I just assume that most young women would not do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole trend well, with your sister and with other friends' kids who have all changed their names. I was like, oh... You're doing that. Okay. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I did find that interesting too. Is something that what I've heard from some people is is as a way of saying that I am committed to like us and this marriage and this partnership and us being a family unit. And a lot of time it comes down to if we're going to have kids together, we're going to be a family unit and we all have the same last name. And I can see how that could be really important to you. And I think that's so right, because I've had so many people who, again, the comments on this post saying, you know, they've been accused of being anti-feminist or they've internalized misogyny because they've changed their last names. You're like, well, no, the entire point of feminism is for you to make that choice that is right for you. And it's not dictated by anyone else. It's dictated by your own choices And I think that's maybe the main part of it is, have you thought about what actually resonates with you? And because it it is your name. And and I think a lot of times it can be easy to kind of brush off, but it's a huge part of how you locate yourself in the world. And so I think that's kind of, there's this untenable thing that I don't really know other than saying that it would feel immensely wrong to change my last name and that was just the, that was never really a discussion between Levi and I and it was never like a you're less committed to me or we're less of partners or less of a family because we each have you know separate last names and I and I never got that sense either like growing up because yeah like same I think with with Levi and I both it being so normalized that both of our mothers especially professionally and Levi's mom is also a teacher went by you know her last name so it never felt like we're disconnected or something from you. I mean, it probably got interesting for you a few times traveling with us, but then also trying to cross the border, having Fisher and Tidy identification. <laughs> no, it only once got me into trouble when Jillian and I were traveling and we were trying to get money from the bank or something. No, it never really caused me any trouble. But I think you've, you've kind of nailed it. I think it's about young women nowadays just consciously making a choice Mm -hmm. and so probably that flip-flop that I made early on was because I didn't it wasn't that I already was aware enough to realize that I had a choice taken away from me it slowly dawned on me Mm. and so it was just a taken for granted thing something that you didn't even think about it was just the way things were done 
And so I think that's a great way of thinking about it with young women nowadays. And you just consciously make a choice and don't feel like you're forced into it by anyone else and what feels right for you. Yeah. Well, and I think what a lot of that comes to our understandings about like sexuality, about gender and so many other things is we are prescribed a way in which to enact those. It's like, well, you're, you know, the norm and folks, you know that I'm using bunny ears here, but like the norm is to be cisgender and that means you're supposed to dress in a certain way and behave in a certain way and the the norm is to be heterosexual and so to be attracted to certain people based on your gender and your sex but i think what can be quite liberating like being a part of the queer community is if you've already gone through that process of questioning and queer can mean all sorts of different things but you've already gone through that questioning and be like okay like who am I attracted to? Who am I in the world in terms of my gender, my sexual orientation? Then those conversations to think more deeply about who you are in the world, I think they happen maybe a bit more easily because you've already kind of kind of bucked that that norm by having to think about it in a different way. Well, and until fairly recently you wouldn't have really seen or heard of examples of others bucking that norm. So, I mean, the assumption that we would have made growing up was that if you had those kinds of thoughts, there was something wrong with you. Mm. And it was definitely, you know, not like you saw examples of people or it was kind of a shameful thing if you if you were questioning those things. So, I mean, it takes a lot of, uh, at that time, and still now, I think, takes a lot of bravery to buck the trend of societal expectations. Absolutely. Even though we're way more open nowadays, I can't imagine that it's easy. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think that what kind of the hope is about this entire podcast and bringing on people with different perspectives is that you can just start to open up that space a little bit more, but to also recognize a lot of the work that people have done for us to even have this kind of open conversation. And also the privilege that I have, you know, as a cisgender, like white bisexual woman that I can share my voice, you know, with hundreds of people, but I'm not worried about my personal safety. As a woman, a lot of the time I do worry about that, but I'm I'm not worried that because I'm sharing my sexual orientation or my marital status or things like that, that I have something to fear. And that's a lot of the people who have come before me to open up that space and say that that you are valid and you are seen and your experience is is worth sharing with more people. A lot of people with a lot of courage. Yeah. yeah. Yes, very courageous people. So which brings me to do you remember when I told you that I was bi? Oh, that wasn't that long ago, was it? That's true. What, for me, what I remember, I remember knowing I was bi when I was 12. Oh, but, oh we didn't have, didn't have that language then. Oh, no, but I know no, bisexual. We're... I remember saying bisexual, though. Because I knew that I was, it was one of the only words that I like knew. Because I had been watching a lot of the L word, Mom. I knew what bisexual meant. Or did I say that word? I knew that I liked, I was attracted to boys and I was attracted to girls and I tried to communicate that with you. No, I remember, I remember, I think, unless we're obviously we're remembering things differently. (laughs) I remember sitting on the famous green couch. Yeah. And you were talking to me about hanging around with a particular friend. I won't say her name. Mm -hmm. And then you said, and mom, and you kind of had a tentative look on your face and you said, and I kissed her. We, We agreed that 
we would be going out and I kissed her. And you kind of grabbed my little pinky finger and we did this little pinky link. I don't know what that <laughs> was. A little pinky link in this sort of look. And it was like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. I can't remember what I said. What did I say? I don't remember what you said, but it I don't def- remember you using the word bisexual, though. I just remember you saying, I kissed this girl. I think we're going out. Oh. Yeah, that was probably I used that word when I was talking to, like, other people. But, yeah, I didn't know if I had said it to you or not. I don't remember using yeah. that word until, like, in the last couple of years. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, okay, that's another thing. Two things I want to get to. First thing, I I don't remember what you said specifically, but I... I just remember the feeling of like being loved and being seen and it wasn't a big deal. And I think that was probably the best thing. You were like, okay, like kind of special because I had shared with you and special with, you know, when your kid's 12 or 13 and they kiss somebody, (laughs) you're like, oh, or maybe I think at 12, I knew that I was attracted to other girls, but I don't think I actually like kissed one until I was like 15 or 16 and then had that conversation with you. It's muddled in my brain. Me too. I thought you were younger than that. You were definitely very interested in kissing, no matter who it was. (laughs) (laughs) I think your first kiss, I remember you telling me, but you basically grabbed his face. That is true. (laughs) Oh, Tony Dio, if you're out there, you remember? First kiss at the top of the road by our old house. (laughs) (laughs) I can just picture it because you told me about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is true. I was very interested in kissing. I was very interested in love. You know, and I, yeah, I... Great to find those love letters. You were writing love letters when you were like five, as soon as you could write. (laughs) I was writing love letters? Yes. (laughs) Well, okay, now you have to tell the famous Barbie story about me with the Barbies. Well, this was, that was what was so interesting. So I came into your room one day and you were like hiding under a blanket. So how old were you? We were living here. You're four or five? So you were like kids playing, whatever, like you make forts and that kind of thing all the time. And so I kind of pulled off this blanket and you had these two Barbies. And I said, what are you doing? And you had these two Barbies, nude Barbies. And you're like, they're doing sex. And you <laughs> very intense, like almost, no, I don't want to say aggressive with you. A very intense voice and look on your face. Like they're doing sex. And then it was always like, Ken and Barbie are going off in the car, except he's going to go and have a date with somebody else. Like you just had all of these <laughs> romance stories. Or even in a grocery store as a three or four year old, you'd have like the fruit in the cart. <laughs> oh, these two pairs love each other. Who is this this little love freak? What's <laughs> I do remember being very concerned about inanimate objects and if they were in love. Like, if I just wanted to make sure they were happy and in love. Like, I remember that with some marbles. I was. Oh, like, I do not remember. I, I just remember it. I was like, I think I had like three marbles in one pile and one in another. And I was like, well, this marble must be sad because it's a lonely marble. And so I would take one of the marbles so that there was two marbles. This is a very monogamous representation right here. This is very monogamy centric. But I was very concerned about inanimate objects and my toys and apparently fruit being in love or feeling loved. It feels apt that that is now the title of this podcast. <laughs> What's that? The Love Doctor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, that that makes sense. Gosh. 
Okay, so let, circling back to what I also wanted to say is that in terms of like using the term bisexual, you're right. Like I haven't really used it. Really, it's been in the last few years that I've been purposely more vocal about it and using that language to describe myself. Sometimes I don't always choose my moments very well of knowing who to share that with when you have been in the room, when, you know, you share it with some family friends and they're like, okie dokie, you know, or the assumption that because I'm married to Levi, that's no longer a part of my identity. You know, on the outside, yeah, I would look like I'm, you know, I'm in a heterosexual marriage. And yes, my partner is a male, but there's, I think for me, I didn't really feel the need to reclaim that until after I got married. And that assumption was made repeatedly, you know, not only about, are you going to have children and now you're married to a man and well done you, you've done these life things and like not messaging coming from you, but just like society as a whole, I had done this big important thing by proving I was this desirable straight woman. And I'm like, huh, this doesn't feel quite right. So I just need to really have, I, it was absolutely an, an example of bi erasure of that, that unless someone is bisexual is, has, you know, multiple partners of multiple genders, then you wouldn't necessarily know that that person is bisexual. So how do you define being bisexual then? For me, it has a lot of overlap with pansexual, but it's just a, a term that I've used, that I've felt comfortable and I've used for myself for quite a long time. So for me, I'm going to put down my wine for this. For me, bisexual just means that I am attracted to multiple genders. So a lot of the time that comes to, I have attraction to cis men and cis women, but that's just been my experience so far, but it could all the way along the gender spectrum. So a lot of people would describe that as pansexual. You're attracted to people instead of genders. But bisexual, even though it has the word bi in it, I don't necessarily see it as that just binary oh, one you're or the other. Forcing that binary again. I was about to ask you what pansexual meant. Oh, I yes. think I know now. Yes, pansexual is it's kind of like you're acknowledging that spectrum of, of gender. And obviously there's far more to that. Yeah, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of like confusion about well why wouldn't you use pan because you don't want to keep promoting that binary but for me and maybe that feels a bit like old fashioned in the in the queer world to still use bisexual but that erasure of someone being bisexual is so real so I feel like I've clung to it even stronger because it's like well I quite often I move through the world feeling like I'm not straight enough and I'm not queer enough and I just never really know where to be. So I'm just trying to hold that space. That's why I kind of like that. Well, I'm not sure if that's the you know official definition, but when you said pansexual is just about loving people regardless mm -hmm. of their gender, I would say that defines you in lots of ways. That That's mm -hmm. the theme that we've been talking about is that you are very in intensely interested in connections with people whether those are sexual connections or emotional connections and it doesn't matter who those people are yeah. so that's interesting yeah actually I hadn't really like thought about it that way of just it does make sense that I very passionately care about other people and I think too often it gets reduced to you know sexual attraction who you have sex with well Absolutely. that's exactly what but that's I, like with every term it's like we were talking about trying to reclaiming of the word queer for example mm. i still am not 100 percent 
understanding that because queer always assumes something that you're being othered and mm. reclaiming that. Anyway, if you reclaim the word bisexual, but that it, right away it had like, you know, as academics, we're always thinking about the connotations of the words that we use. Yes. And bisexual seems to just have the connotations of, well, you, there is that binary and you can have sex with either men or with women. And, and I just think it maybe is limiting. I have no idea. Oh. I have no idea. I'm not going to tell you how to define yourself. <laughs> Far be it from me. I don't even understand half of it. So. Well, yeah, no, I feel like, like pansexual. I don't know, mom, maybe, maybe you're like expanding my mind, no identifying as, as pan, but yeah, it's, it's, I think that's such an interesting thing as well, because that's something that I've like struggled with in terms of academia. Like in my dissertation, I located myself as a bisexual woman. Not only that, but especially in the world today, because before you could do research and you're like, I did this research and now it's true. And it's like, okay, well, who are you in the world that's framing? What's that lens through which you did this research? So a lot of my work was, you know, I'm I'm white settler, I'm cisgender, and so so many other different things. But I put bisexual in there, and I wrote it in, and then I took it out. And then I wrote it in, and then I backspace it again and again, because I couldn't decide, oh, am I sharing too much about who I am, having that in there? Is it necessary for me to say that I'm bisexual? I'm like, well, actually, yeah, like that does, it does change how I perceive the world. And I'm especially as someone who I like to you know, pride myself on, on being as accessible as I can be. And I'm always working on that. And if I'm going to say that I'm holding a queer inclusive space, then I think I need to indicate myself. I'm like, okay, am I an ally? Am I a member of the queer community? And the hard thing is, I feel like both because I'm a representative of also straight society, I get to walk through the world enjoying all of the benefits of being straight passing, because I get to, you know, hold my partner's hand and not worry about someone hurting us or someone, you know, making judgments about who we are as people or when we have children, who we are as parents or things like that. So it's a struggle that obviously I can't speak for all bi and pan folks, but I think it's a struggle that a lot of people feel in straddling that world. And so I think thinking about it in our capacity to love would hopefully just maybe open that up a little bit, not just sexually, but so many other things that in our capacity to love. Maybe I've gone on a whole tangent, Mom. I don't know. <laughs> I've gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> you won't really know until you listen back. It's like, oh, how far did I go down that track? <laughs> <laughs> you went for a while, Leah. Goodness, good thing I can edit. <laughs> oh, man, I've, I've kept you on here for a while. But I'm kind of interested at the end of it what is kind of your sense of, of, and I'm not seeking like your praise here or something like that, but what is your sense of there's a difference when you can listen to a sex podcast and be like, oh, that's objectively good advice. I should follow this. And then listening to a sex podcast from someone who literally came out of your body. You created this human being. They're your child. <laughs> so I don't know, like what, how does that kind of temper? I, I, I'm not sure what I'm fully getting at here, but does does that change it in some way? Because it can be hard to talk about sex with our family members. I know that. That's that's why it's much easier. I feel to share my voice talking about these things with you, listeners, than it is to sit down at a family dinner. And I'm getting there, but 
It's yeah, hard. But, well, I think, I don't know, between you and I, you created that space. You always were interested and willing and open to talk about us. You taught me so much about how to talk about it. I'm so never good about talking about my own sexuality, but you were very good at talking about it. So it was never... I would hope that you never felt that you couldn't just talk about whatever because you actually created the pathway to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, because you were so interested in talking about it from an age where you didn't even have any reason to be self-conscious, you know, when you're younger and you don't have any of those, mm-hmm. that messaging when you're three and four and five and you want to ask about sex and I'm trying so hard just not to give you any signals that indicate that it wasn't okay or that I was uncomfortable talking about that. And so... That doesn't feel really any different for me, mm. having you do the podcast other than you're my child, so then I'm trying not to, you know, claim any... You feel proud, but I don't want to feel mm. proud in a way that claims your accomplishments in any way. And then mm. once in a while, I feel a little uncomfortable because I just i am not familiar with the information and don't really know how to uh, process it, but I don't mm. think that necessarily has anything to do with you personally how do I explain that but I mean it's kind of weird because lately it's just kind of nice just to hear your voice and so sometimes I'll just be doing something and I feel like I'm hanging out with you particularly when you weren't living here but even when you are living here (laughs) you get to hear my voice every day I just get to hear your voice I don't know that's really strange but yeah so I guess in the back of my mind I feel sometimes uh protective like if you say something that I think might be considered really controversial then I don't want people to react in some way that will be negative for you but I guess that's the only piece of it I kind of feel like I own more than I not more than I need to but I kind of feel some uh oh I don't know what's the right word I think through to the response. So sometimes mm. when I'm listening, I'm thinking, how are people going to respond to that? How are people going to respond to that? Mm. And just in a protective sort of way, I guess, because mm-hmm. we've talked about this before. I'm still kind of grappling with how public young people are mm-hmm. nowadays with the kinds of things that we wouldn't have spoken about publicly. And I feel really uncomfortable sometimes with how much you share about yourself. And so then that's just... Uh, think more of a protective instinct that comes in and mm-hmm. wanting to feel that that's okay for you yeah definitely that's that's been a, a struggle as well I feel like I've been really fortunate so far and that the responses that I've gotten from listeners and the questions that I've gotten have been insanely respectful and open and really beautiful feedback uh, but I know that you know the also sharing things online, you are opening yourself up to all sorts of different ramifications of that, which are, you know, personal, because I've had like some people like say things mainly on on Levi's YouTube channel, because he has so many more people who follow him there than I do, you know, in these other platforms that, yeah, like sometimes there are like comments about like me, not very many, but I I make a point if people say something about me, I'm like, well, I'm not going to go read the comments because why would I put that into my mind? Um, But I feel like I've been really fortunate so far that has not been the experience. Uh, I do worry sometimes in terms of like my career, you know, academically, does it matter that, yeah, I shared a picture of myself wearing period underwear? Like, is that okay? Because that's my 
personal Instagram account than that. And I don't think that should be a reason why anyone would not hire me for a job because I'm very qualified for it. But it is a consideration that, you know, you don't want to be seen as frivolous and as a, a young woman and a young academic. You know, I, I want to be taken seriously, but also know that the work that I do online and the work that I do creating this podcast is very deeply important to me because it allows me to have conversations with people that I think we don't necessarily get to have in academia. When you don't treat the topics frivolously, mm. but you know, so I think that's important, but yeah, there is uh, definitely a sense of opening yourself up to a world that isn't always kind. And so I'm glad that you haven't had any or much negative pushback. And it can be, even though it's, anonymous people online that can still be hurtful yeah yeah definitely okay let's finish it with something something light and nice so a few weeks ago i got a hilarious message on instagram from an old friend of mine and she told me about when we were five years old <laughs> when we were five years old we were over at our other friend safia's house and we were playing hide and go seek or something and i turned to this friend and i say do you know what sex is and she was like uh no and i said well it's when two people dance together very slowly or some, something along those lines. And I was like, why was I asking you? What did you know? What's that? Maybe I was trying to gather information from them. Or who knows? But where did you even hear the word? I don't know. Don't even know. <laughs> so people, just to finish off with that, apparently sex nerds are born. Not that you cannot become a sexual health educator and interested in sex ed and things like that. But unfortunately, some of us are born with it, and you just, you have to follow that path. <laughs> <laughs> are sex nerds born or made? Probably both, but this yeah, one, I think. I don't know. It's like, anyway, so that's kind of interesting. I don't know about the word sex nerd, but just, I think that there's that thread that I would take beyond sexuality that's about just that sense of deep connection with people. Mm -hmm. That's what I think you're more about than just the sex thing yeah i think you're right i don't know if that's interesting because you don't come across as like i've had friends who are like uh how do you explain it like just like hot for sex all the time mm -hmm. and they're just like you could just it's almost it was almost like an energy that was coming off of them like mm, just they exude. really exuding that passionate sexy i don't even know what, i don't know what that word is but there's an aura of just this, like, wanting to draw sexual energy. It makes their pheromones are just, like, pouring <laughs> off them. I don't know. But I've, had a f I've known a few people like that. And that's not you. No. No. And I feel like sometimes people are surprised, like, if they were to meet me in real life. Levi and I talked about this at our walk this morning. I literally had a little bit of, like, my breakfast on my chin. And I was wearing Cookie Monster mittens. And I turned to Levi and was like, I am still sexy. And I can still be a sex educator. And I can wear these adorable Cookie Monster mittens. And, and you have food on yeah, your face. And then he said, you have food on your face. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thanks. Oh, I just did a Cookie Monster laugh. Oh, that was an Ernie laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah that's interesting yeah, yeah because yeah i think there's this assumption and a lot of what you will see people market themselves online is like oh i'm like sexually liberated and i exude sex and that's 
great. Like if that's who you are and feels very authentic, that's awesome. And so for a lot of times I kind of felt a bit like a fraud. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm like sexy enough. Am I out there enough? And, but I guess just trying to break it down and be like, you know, if you're just meet me in real life, you know, yes, I do own a vulva necklace and I own, you know, like a booby pot and things like that, but sure. I also just look like a normal human like being. Walking around with flowing caftan that reveals yes. intimate pieces of your body. No, okay, here's the word that we've been using a lot in my work lately, and I think that this is what you are, is deeply intentional. Mm. So you're not reckless and you're not just like exuding your pheromones all over the place. You're just very deeply curious, deeply intentional about your connections with people. Mm. And that extends into the physical aspect of connecting with people as well as the emotional aspects of connecting with people. That's why I think you are. I feel like you'd be a pretty good judge of that. So you know me pretty well. I do. But you have many hidden depths. <laughs> I'm so deep. More of which are revealed every week on this podcast. <laughs> Hit the subscribe button now. <laughs> That's right. My mother shamelessly promoting this podcast, which is actually, this is the last interview of season one. This is the last episode of season one. And I, my heart is just feeling very full and happy and excited for season two because I've already, you know, I'm already started working on season two, but I know that this will be a really a beautiful way. And I think especially leading into the holidays right now where we don't know if we can be with our families or what our family or chosen family things look like. I just feel very privileged and very lucky to be able to live with you, to live here in the place where I grew up with you and dad and with Levi and to have that connection to the two of you and that sense of like warmth and community and feeling seen. I hope you are feeling a huge sense of accomplishment because this has been a lot of work and you didn't just pick it up as a fad. Again, another reflection of the deeply intentional way you go about things. And you created a body of work in even in your first season. That's very impressive. It'll be fun to see where it goes. Thanks, Mama. More wine. (laughs) Cheers. Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to this, the last episode of season one of the Love Doctor podcast. This season, it has been better than I could have ever imagined. And that is because of you listeners. Thank you for listening, for sending in your questions and for creating room for us to have these conversations about sex. But don't worry, I will be back for season two coming out in January 2021. I already have amazing guests lined up and I cannot wait to share these fascinating conversations with you. In the meantime, please do not hesitate to send in your questions. As always, voice memo is the best so we can hear your voice on the podcast. And you can send it to me on Instagram at dr.leatidy or to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. And while you wait with bated breath for season two, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter and feel free to get in touch or, you know, share this podcast and leave a review. But till then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual. Stay consensual.